Section 12 of The Arabian Nights Entertainments, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Pruden. The Arabian Nights Entertainments, Volume 1. By Anonymous. Translated by Dr. Jonathan Scott. Section 12. The History of the First Calendar. Madam, in order to inform you how I lost my right eye, and while I was obliged to put myself into a calendar's habit, I must tell you that I am a sultan's son born. My father had a brother who reigned over a neighboring kingdom, and the prince, his son, and I were nearly of the same age. After I had learned my exercises, the sultan, my father, granted me such liberty as suited my dignity. I went regularly every year to see my uncle, at whose court I amused myself for a month or two, and then returned again to my father's. These journeys cemented a firm and intimate friendship between the prince, my cousin, and myself. The last time I saw him he received me with greater demonstrations of tenderness than he had done at any time before, and resolving one day to give me a treat, he made great preparations for that purpose. We continued a long time at table, and after we had both supped, Cousin, said he, you will hardly be able to guess how I have been employed since your last departure from hence, about a year past. I have had a great many men at work to perfect a design I have formed. I have caused an edifice to be built, which is now finished, so as to be habitable. You will not be displeased if I shew it you. But first you are to promise me upon oath that you will keep my secret according to the confidence I repose in you. The affection and familiarity that subsisted between us would not allow me to refuse him anything. I very readily took the oath required of me, upon which he said to me, Stay here till I return, I will be with you in a moment, and accordingly he came with a lady in his hand of singular beauty and magnificently apparelled. He did not intimate who she was, neither did I think it would be polite to inquire. We sat down again with this lady at table, where we continued some time conversing upon indifferent subjects, and now and then filling a glass to each other's health. After which the prince said, Cousin, we must lose no time, therefore pray oblige me by taking this lady along with you and conducting her to such a place where you will see a tomb newly built in form of a dome. You will easily know it. The gate is open. Enter it together, and tarry till I come, which will be very speedily. Being true to my oath, I made no farther inquiry, but took the lady by the hand, and by the directions which the prince my cousin had given me, I brought her to this place. We were scarcely got thither, when we saw the prince following us, carrying a pitcher of water, a hatchet, and a little bag of mortar. The hatchet served him to break down the empty sepulchre in the middle of the tomb. He took away the stones one after another and laid them in a corner. He then dug up the ground, where I saw a trap-door under the sepulchre, which he lifted up and underneath perceived the head of a staircase leading into a vault. Then my cousin, speaking to the lady, said, Madam, it is by this way that we are to go to the place I told you of. 
upon which the lady advanced and went down, and the prince began to follow, but first turning to me said, "'My dear cousin, I am infinitely obliged to you for the trouble you have taken. I thank you. Adieu.' "'Dear cousin,' I cried, "'what is the meaning of this? Be content,' he replied. "'You may return the way you came.' I could get nothing farther from him, but was obliged to take my leave. As I returned to my uncle's palace, the vapors of the wine got up into my head. However, I reached my apartment and went to bed. Next morning, when I awoke, I began to reflect upon what had happened, and after recollecting all the circumstances of such a singular adventure, I fancied it was nothing but a dream. Full of these thoughts, I sent to inquire if the prince, my cousin, was ready to receive a visit from me. But when they brought back word that he did not lie in his own lodgings that night, that they knew not what was become of him, and were in much trouble in consequence, I conceived that the strange event of the tomb was too true. I was sensibly afflicted, and went to the public burying-place, where there were several tombs like that which I had seen. I spent the day in viewing them one after another, but could not find that I sought for, and thus I spent four days successively in vain. You must know that all this while the sultan my uncle was absent, and had been hunting for several days, I grew weary of waiting for him, and having prayed his ministers to make my apology at his return, left his palace and set out towards my father's court. I left the ministers of the sultan my uncle in great trouble, surmising what was become of the prince, but because of my oath to keep his secret, I durst not tell them what I had seen. I arrived at my father's capital, where, contrary to custom, I found a numerous guard at the gate of the palace, who surrounded me as I entered. I asked the reason, and the commanding officer replied, Prince, the army has proclaimed a grand vizier instead of your father, who is dead, and I take you prisoner in the name of the new sultan. At these words the guards laid hold of me and carried me before the tyrant. I leave you to judge, madam, how much I was surprised and grieved. This rebel vizier had long entertained a mortal hatred against me for this reason. When I was stripling I loved to shoot with a crossbow, and being one day upon the terrace of the palace with my bow, a bird happening to come by, I shot but missed him, and the ball by misfortune hit the vizier, who was taking the air upon the terrace of his own house, and put out one of his eyes. As soon as I understood this, I not only sent to make my excuse to him, but did it in person. Yet he never forgave me, and, as opportunity offered, made me sensible of his resentment. But now that he had me in his power, he expressed his feelings, for he came to me like a madman, and soon as he saw me, and thrusting his finger into my right eye, pulled it out, and thus I became blind of one eye. But the usurper's cruelty did not stop here. He ordered me to be shut up in a machine, and commanded the executioner to carry me into the country, to cut off my head, and leave me to be devoured by birds of prey. The executioner conveyed me thus, shut up into the country, in order to execute the barbarous sentence, but by my prayers and tears I moved the man's compassion, 
Go, he said to me, get you speedily out of the kingdom and take heed of returning, or you will certainly meet your own ruin and be the cause of mine. I thanked him for the favor he did me, and as soon as I was left alone, comforted myself for the loss of my eye, by considering that I had very narrowly escaped a much greater evil. Being in such a condition, I could not travel far at a time. I retired to remote places during the day and traveled as far by night as my strength would allow me. At last I arrived at the dominions of the sultan, my uncle, and came to his capital. I gave him a long detail of the tragical cause of my return and of the sad condition he saw me in. Alas, cried he, was it not enough for me to have lost my son, but must I have also news of the death of a brother I love so dearly, and see you reduced to this deplorable condition? He told me how uneasy he was that he could hear nothing of his son, notwithstanding all the inquiry he could make. At these words the unfortunate father burst into tears and was so much afflicted that, pitying his grief, it was impossible for me to keep the secret any longer, so that, notwithstanding my oath to the prince my cousin, I told the sultan all I knew. His majesty listened to me with some sort of comfort, and when I had done, Nephew, said he, what you tell me gives me some hope. I knew that my son ordered that tomb to be built, and I can guess pretty nearly the place, and with the idea you still have of it, I fancy we shall find it. But since he ordered it to be built privately, and you took your oath to keep his secret, I am of opinion that we ought to go in quest of it without other attendants. But he had another reason for keeping the matter secret, which he did not then tell me, and an important one it was, as you will perceive by the sequel of my story. We disguised ourselves and went out by the door of the garden which opened into the fields, and soon found what we sought for. I knew the tomb, and was the more rejoiced, because I had formerly sought it a long time in vain. We entered, and found the iron trap pulled down at the head of the staircase. We had great difficulty raising it, because the prince had fastened it inside with the water and mortar formerly mentioned, but at last we succeeded. The sultan, my uncle, descended first, I followed, and then went down about fifty steps. When we came to the foot of the stairs, we found a sort of antechamber full of thick smoke and an ill scent, which obscured the lamp that gave a very faint light. From this antechamber we came into another, very large, supported by columns and lighted by several branched candlesticks. There was a cistern in the middle, and provisions of several sorts stood on one side of it but we were much surprised not to see any person. Before us there appeared a high estrade which was mounted by several steps, and upon this there was a large bed with curtains drawn. The sultan went up, and opening the curtains perceived the prince, his son, and the lady in bed together, but burnt and changed to cinder, as if they had been thrown into a fire and taken out before they were consumed. But what surprised me most was that though this spectacle filled me with horror, the sultan, my uncle, instead of testifying his sorrow to see the prince, his son, in such a condition, spat on his face and exclaimed with a disdainful air, This is the punishment of this world, but that of the other will last to eternity. And not content with this, he pulled off his sandal and gave the corpse of his son a blow on the cheek. 
I cannot adequately express how much I was astonished when I saw the sultan my uncle abuse his son thus after he was dead. Sir, said I, whatever grief this dismal sight has impressed upon me, I am forced to suspend it, to inquire of your majesty what crime the prince my cousin may have committed, that his corpse should deserve such indignant treatment. Nephew, replied the sultan, I must tell you that my son, who is unworthy of that name, loved his sister from infancy as she did him. I did not check their growing fondness because I did not foresee its pernicious consequence. This tenderness increased as they grew in years and to such a height that I dreaded the end of it. At last I applied such remedies as were in my power. I not only gave my son a severe reprimand in private, laying before him the horrible nature of the passion he entertained, and the eternal disgrace he would bring upon my family if he persisted, but I also represented the same to my daughter and shut her up so close that she could have no conversation with her brother. But that unfortunate creature had swallowed so much of the poison that all the obstacles which by my prudence I could lay in the way served only to inflame her love. My son, being persuaded of his sister's constancy, on presence of building a tomb, caused this subterraneous habitation to be made, in hopes of finding one day or other an opportunity to possess himself of that objet, which was the cause of his flame, and to bring her hither. He took advantage of my absence to enter by force into the place of his sister's confinement. But this was a circumstance which my honor would not suffer me to make public. And after so damnable an action, he came and shut himself up with her in this place, which he has supplied, as you see, with all sorts of provisions that he might enjoy detestable pleasures, which ought to be the subject of horror to all the world. But God who would not suffer such an abomination, has justly punished them both. At these words he melted into tears, and I joined mine with his. After a while, casting his eyes upon me, Dear nephew, cried he, embracing me, If I have lost that unworthy son, I shall happily find in you what will better supply his place. The reflections he made on the doleful end of the prince and princess, his daughter, made us both weep afresh. We ascended the stairs again and departed at last from that dismal place. We let down the trap-door and covered it with earth and such other materials as the tomb was built of, on purpose to hide as much delay in our power, so terrible an effect of the wrath of God. We had not been long returned to the palace unperceived by anyone, but we heard a confused noise of trumpets, drums, and other instruments of war. We soon understood by the thick cloud of dust which almost darkened the air that it was the arrival of a formidable army, and it proved to be the same vizier that had dethroned my father and usurped his place, who, with a vast number of troops, was come to possess himself of that also of the sultan my uncle. My uncle, who then had only his usual guards about him, could not resist so numerous an army. They invested the city, and the gates being opened to them without any resistance, soon became masters of it, and broke into the palace where my uncle defended himself and sold his life at a dear rate. I fought as valiantly for a while, but seeing we were forced to submit to a superior power, I thought on my retreat which I had the good fortune to effect by some back ways, 
and got to one of the sultan's servants, whose fidelity I could depend. Being thus surrounded with sorrows and persecuted fortune, I had recourse to a stratagem, which was the only means left me to save my life. I caused my beard and eyebrows to be shaved, and putting on a calendar's habit I passed unknown by any out of the city. After that, by degrees, I found it easy to quit my uncle's kingdom by taking the by-roads. I avoided passing through towns until I had reached the empire of the mighty governor of the Musulmans, the glorious and renowned Caliph Harun al-Rashid, when I thought myself out of danger. And considering what I was to do, I resolved to come to Baghdad, intending to throw myself at the feet of that monarch whose generosity is renowned throughout the world. I shall move him to compassion, said I to myself, by the relation of my uncommon misfortunes, and without doubt he will take pity on a persecuted prince, and not suffer me to implore his assistance in vain. In short, after a journey of several months, I arrived yesterday at the gate of this city, into which I entered about the dusk of evening, and stopping a little while to consider which way I was to turn, another calendar came up. He saluted me, and I him. "'You appear,' said I, "'to be a stranger, as I am.' "'You are not mistaken,' replied he. He had no sooner returned this answer than a third calendar overtook us. He saluted us and told us he was a stranger newly come to Baghdad, so that as brethren we joined together, resolving not to separate from one another. It was now late, and we knew not where to seek a lodging in the city where we had never been before.' But good fortune having brought us to your gate, we made bold to knock, when you received us with so much kindness that we are incapable of rendering suitable thanks. This, madam, said he, is, in obedience to your commands, the account I was to give how I lost my right eye, wherefore my beard and eyebrows are shaved, and how I came to be with you at this time. It is enough, said Zabid, you may retire to what place you think fit. The calendar begged the lady's permission to stay till he had heard the relations of his two comrades, whom I cannot, said he, leave with honor, and that he might also hear those of the three other persons in company. The story of the first calendar seemed wonderful to the whole company, but especially to the caliph, who, notwithstanding the slaves, stood by with their scimitars drawn, could not forbear whispering to the vizier, Many stories have I heard, but never any that equaled in surprising incident that of the calendar. Whilst he was saying this, the second calendar began, addressing himself to Zobid. End of section 12. Recording by John Pruden of www.johnpruden.com.